0: if you're a golfer, you can start golfing again if your local course is open because that sport is now permissible in um, Melbourne under the current lockdown rules. But what about Northcote? Um, the Northcote golf course has been opened as a public parkland since July and is now the go-to space for thousands of people. And uh, the Durban Council, which owns land, is now in discussions with the managers of the golf course about its future. Associate Professor Dave Nichols is a lecturer in urban planning over at the University of Melbourne. He's become quite interested in this kind of evolving negotiation and around the use of this public space. And it's um, great to have you back for your monthly chat, yeah. Hi, Kalia. Hi, and you've been there to Northcote Golf Course. I've been there. I went there.
2: Um, it's just inside my. Remember the days of the five-kilometer zone? Oh, it's gone. It's days? gone.
0: That's just a distant memory now.
2: <laughs> uh, I know, a distant memory. But I just, I, I it's just inside my five-kilometer zone. So I, um, I went, I went there on uh, uh, Saturday, and um, I was amazed. Like I was actually um, fairly ambivalent before this time but i realized when i went there how you know kind of your weirdly one's sort of lived experience of an environment that you know you think you know and then you realize there's this whole there's this whole huge area in in my understanding of like mary creek northcote and so on i just never really um i don't know canvassed as a as a as a space it's just, just it was just a blank space for me. And when I went there, I was amazed at this huge green open space area that, that it definitely exists. And right now, it's, it's actually still open, I believe, uh, for two more days um, to, to everybody. The um, Right now, you can go there and, and wander around and see, you know, it is pretty extraordinary, that golf course. It's been a golf course since 1966. Uh, I understand it was reclaimed land. Uh, they, they re-channeled the creek uh, at some time, I, I think, in the 50s. It's kind of fl- flood-prone land, so it can't be built on or anything, so it has to be used for something. And in the mid-60s, it was decided to uh, use it as a, to turn it into a golf course. And, of course, there's park space on the other side of the creek, on the, uh, the Brunswick side of the creek. But, um, yeah, on the Northcote side, it was... Um, Kind of, kind of given over to. There's, there's a, few, there's a few other, there's another park space as well, but, but basically to a, to a golf course. And now that the, um, or in recent, in recent months, with that pedestrian bridge opened up uh, across the creek, uh, p- partly for the benefit of um, primary school kids on the Brunswick, you know, the the school on the Brunswick side, uh, so that they can they can come from the Northcote side and cross over without going across Arthurton Road I know I'm being very very specific and local here but i'm sure a lot of people know know what I'm talking about but the point is that there's a new pedestrian bridge that's been opened over the creek and that gives um, instant access to the, to the golf course as well so in July as you said um, uh, the, the council opened up the, the golf course because no golf was being played, opened it up to people who, who needed, wanted recreation space in, in the area. And, um, you know, people had been letting themselves in by making holes in the fence before that time. So it was kind of, um, you know, there'd been a little bit of, you know, illegal entry before, before that time. And council, in their wisdom, decided, well, you know, how are we going to stop people from doing this? It's too much of a nuisance. And anyway, why shouldn't they um, have access to this space since it's not being used for anything else? And uh, and now we have this situation where there are a lot of people agitating for the, you know, a rethink of how this space should be used.
0: And it's really fascinating because we do have council elections coming up and I understand in my trip to, to the area over the weekend as well, I'm speaking to kind of... Um, residents in the streets surrounds that there are candidates that are are running on a kind of mixed use or or, um, new ideas for that course and also the opposite that it should be retained for golf because I I understand you know at least 18,000 people kind of tee off a year um, but that is you know a third of what used to use the course back in its sort of heyday so it it is an interesting issue playing out there.
2: It's a really interesting issue, and it leads us into that kind of area. Like golf, you know, uh, I've got to say, I don't know about you, Kelly, but I'm not a golfer.
0: Look, I'm not Uh, a golfer, and I I have to say my one one experience on a golf course was being a caddy for my dad, who actually wasn't a golfer either, was a cricketer, and he hit a golf ball like a cricket ball, and I'm like, oh, oh, this is just (laughs) very entertaining. But no, I'm not a golfer, but I do know a lot of people who – are and yeah. who it's very important to. So I suppose... Do you? You're
2: so bourgeois. I didn't realise you were that Really? Bourgeois. Do you
0: have to be bourgeois yeah. to play golf? See, I don't... No,
2: you don't. No, you don't. That's the... I was, I was playing on you the, the cliché well, there. It is. And,
0: yeah. But anyway, um, I, I'm interested in how this is playing out because maybe it's a bit like, um, I know people that have gone to the beach and done the wrong thing and um, during the pandemic have, have been singled out, say at Bondi and other places, more so than people doing the wrong thing in other areas. And I wonder if there is something around some activities that... That do make people um yeah less less sympathetic maybe um.
2: because of the pandemic I think um the, the the like golf you know look I mean it see it it, it brings up all kinds of um, thoughts thoughts and feelings for me when I think about um, Northcote and you know when I, when I read there's a, there's a dedicated uh, Facebook page to um, unlocking the, the golf course which is like full of like fascinating ideas some people are being funny, some people are very upset uh, about uh, the, the idea that the golf course will be turned into you know just general park space, um, some people are very upset about the idea that it wouldn't be uh and there's there's all kinds of um ideas for new new use and so on. But yeah, there there is this kind of sense of um golf as being an exclusive activity. And it is, you know, it does sort of make sense uh the notion that this big open area should be uh kept aside for use of members or you know, members and their guests, sort of paying people who pay to use the, the course. And it's um it is a pretty extraordinary space, but of course um, it's maintained by the fees of the people who, you know, the reason it's an extraordinary space, uh, you know, it's not just sort of this, you know, natural area that's, um, that just happens to be this glorious um you know, expansive landscape. I was going to say the um, um, the, the beautiful, spongy,
0: yeah, the, the spongy picnic space um, yeah. that I witnessed is extraordinary, yeah. but because there are people that maintain the greens.
2: That's right, exactly, that's right. And um, so that's, so there are, a few, there are a few things going on there. It's, it is, you know, I can imagine if I was a golf club member having been, you know, involved in the upkeep of this space for all this time... Uh, for then you know a whole bunch of locals to turn up and sort of go oh my god this is incredible you know how how can you you know think that you own this or have a stake in this we all should own it you'd be like you'd be going yeah because we've kept it this way and we've made it this way or someone made it this way and we kept it this way so it's that's interesting I mean the whole story of like the golf thing golf needs a lot of space and i think that over time there has been a sense that the pro of, you know, the, the, the positive of golf courses around the city is what they're not. They're not, um, you know, polluting spaces. They're, they're um, you know, they're that kind of, that idea of, a um, you, know, you know, carbon sinks, I suppose, in a way. They, um, they certainly don't produce pollution, uh, really, and they they do have a lot of um, extra advantages for uh, local wildlife. I mean, of course, they also have extra advantages for introduced wildlife. Um, they have advantages for birds and so on um, because they're relatively, you know, they're not not disturbed. They're not ultra used spaces. And I guess that's another question: is like does every open space have to be used, used, used? Um, and super available, and I don't think it necessarily does. But I put golf courses in the same kind of category as cemeteries, uh, oddly enough, um, because they're you know they're big open spaces that are sort of semi-forgotten. They're not really noticed and not really thought about, um, but they they have this extra um, uh, advantage to the city because of what they're not. They're not well, they're not factories. They're not roads. They're not um, you know they're not houses. Um, using all the resources that residential areas normally use, and so on. Uh, So in that sense, they're they're just a a plus. But I can also see why people would see them as uh, exclusive. I mean, by their very nature, they are literally exclusive. Um, Most people are excluded from using them unless they want to go and play golf.
0: Yeah. And I mean, look, seeing the joy that people were were getting out of using the Northcote golf course as a recreation parkland um, was, you know, pretty, it's actually pretty exciting. I was, I when when I was walking through, I, I sort of, I just loved being there and seeing views of, of the Russian church that I hadn't seen before across the creek and, and seeing, you know, the city from a different point of view. But I mean, now what, comes of it, do you think, Dave? Um, I mean there is a, yeah. a decision to be made. And I, I suppose because you do, you know, look look to history as well, have we mm. seen spaces like this be contested in a similar way elsewhere that we could we could learn from? Like a like, uh, yeah
2: question, Kalia. Yeah, and so yeah, so once it's seen it can't be unseen, right? I mean, you know, I think that there's a lot of people probably with the same kind of like you or me would not really have thought about it before this time, and now we've seen it. We know that it's it's glorious, and we sort of, you know, it's not like we're uh, acquisitive. We're not like, oh, now we we need it all the time. But we might have some kind of now we have an understanding of it, and uh, and we know it's a, it's a beautiful area. Okay, so uh, traditionally, like the the golf course story has often been um, golf golf courses and golf clubs uh, as the city expands they get pushed out to the edge of the city um, because you know like a like a lot of similar large-scale facilities they find themselves in um, in possession of very valuable land but somebody says well we need that for housing there's a lot of there's a lot of areas around Melbourne that you know used to be golf courses a lot of suburbs um, often salubrious suburbs because they're kind of in beautiful spots in the first place but um in this case, it's not... You can't build on that land. It's flood-prone. Um, and so... Oh, I don't think you can anyway. There's there's quite a lot of nice... You might have noticed there's, there's sort of a lot of housing around the edge that looks into the space. So there are people who are residents who, whether they're members or not, they're getting the benefit of, of seeing that, that big open space, and they also have the disbenefit of potentially having golf balls being hit through their windows. But, um, you know, so there's also big big fences put up for that. Uh, to stop that, but um, yeah, so I guess in this case it, it has to remain open space. I'm fairly sure about, about that. I don't think it can be anything else. Um, but there, it comes down to that kind of question, and that this is something that's this is what I found fascinating: the debate on the Facebook page, where there's been a lot of people who've kind of crept into the group. It's um, it's it's open to to anyone. Um, I think um, and a lot of people kind of kind of creep in and, and start, you know in inverted commas, playing devil's advocate. I mean, I think they actually have uh, fairly strong beliefs about about retaining the golf course as a golf course uh, and sort of saying, well, you know, um, it's not really uh, an elitist pursuit. Uh, it's it's great exercise, for, particularly for older people, um, people from all walks of life use the golf course and so on.
0: And, and there's the so. argument that it is a very affordable club compared to to others. Totally. Yeah, Um yeah, yeah. We, we, I mean, which also could be turned into a question of maybe other clubs could be more affordable, but but that is you know a valid argument. I think in many people's um, minds is well, that this it, is a, a community club. That's
2: right, exactly. And and the other the other thing is I can I can imagine if I was part of the golf club I'd be like, well, there are actually like tons of parks up and down Merry Creek and around Brunswick and Northcote. There are a lot of parks. So you know, for the general public to say, well, we want this to be also be a passive recreation park is a little bit, uh, you know, in some ways a little bit greedy and um, could be seen that way. You know, it's like, go and, go and spend time in the parks that already exist because there's plenty of them. And I saw someone do a, a quite a decent um, map of uh, just the cumulative park space area um, in, in that region where, you know, there's already the, the same amount of space in... Uh, used by the golf course as is to dedicated to just passive recreation areas around there so you know it's
0: and, and I suppose it didn't feel I suppose it didn't feel greedy when we couldn't go very far away um, exactly. it felt very very necessary but um Correct. I think I just interrupted you but I wanted to ask about the kind of idea of mixed use and I understand that at royal park where there's a golf course um that one is already mixed use where that it isn't fenced and people can traverse it whether they're playing golf or not um do we have a sense of whether golf can coexist with these other kind of passive recreational i think you called it um activities that we could have them happening at the same time
2: yeah i mean look in a way, I think that's possibly true. I think you'd have to be if you were wandering through a, a place where you know golf is currently being played. I don't know if you've ever been through that Royal Park Golf Course. Um, I have, and I've been yelled at for um, you know interrupting someone's shot or whatever they, they call it. They say four. Uh, yeah, they do. They say that. Yeah, I <laughs> never understood that. Um, yeah. So um, the so there's so there's a there's an element of you know you'd have to you'd have to have a bit of um, you'd have to be forewarned about the. I guess that's what forewarning is when someone calls for, right? Um, The, there's, you'd have to know that you're in in a danger zone if you're wandering through that, that golf, through a golf course. There's also that, someone also suggested that maybe they should just play golf like six hours a day or something, and then the rest of the time it could be anybody's space. But then there's also the question, and there's been a lot of uh, criticism of the, you know, the the casual newbie users that they leave mess and there's like, you know, that they bring their dogs and the dogs, dogs won't clean up after themselves and all that kind of stuff. Um, which I think, you know, I, I take some of that with a little bit of a grain of salt myself. Although I have seen photos as well of you know, uh, trash, rubbish dump dumped in the, in the golf course space by, you know, picnickers. So, um, there, there are all these questions. You know, how do how do these two, um, how do these two civilizations live uh, live together? Uh, it's it's going to be really interesting. I I do feel that. Okay, so sorry. What, what I was going to say was that the the, the pro golf people, you know, the people who want to want to keep it as a, exclusively as a golf course, say, yeah, okay. You know, hipsters. Once you get, as you said, Kalia. Once you get your, you know, your your horizons are broadened uh, and you are able to go to cafes and bars and stuff you're not going to want to be you know picnicking all the time um, you know you, you're gonna you're gonna forget about this
0: you get to do something else for once
2: <laughs> exactly get to do something else um, and I can see that as you know I mean I know that it's a little bit kind of withering it's a little bit kind of dismissive to, to talk that way but I can see the point and you made the point that you know um we were all kind of um, focused on our five-kilometre zone until yesterday. And so we um, we weren't um, – what am I trying to say? We maybe maybe the people uh, of
0: North can go into someone else's golf course now.
2: <laughs> exactly. That's right.
0: And, oh, look, know, I'm joking, I mean, but I just think it's also fascinating, isn't it, that, as you say, you can't unsee um, something and – and yeah. now what? Like, is this is this one of these moments where that space, this incredible space in in Northcote, is, is completely renegotiated? And um, and I'm I suppose I don't know of this happening in other parts of, of Melbourne, but it could be happening. I I where...
2: understand Elston. Elston yeah, right. I think. Yeah, or, or Elwood. Yeah, I think there's 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 a kind of a. You know a similar kind of story going on and it and it does happen over time like there is a time at which people go well, look the local area has changed too much we don't need a golf course here anymore um you know but often that as i say that often turns into kind of you know just uh rebuilding over the top of it and that's not that can't happen here so it has to be open space so then, yes, there is that question, what kind of open space and or how is it going to be used? And, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I think there's been, there has been, people have discovered each other, you know, uh, different pe- different tribes have discovered each other in this in this way. And, the, um, you know, for all I know, the people of the golf course have long felt a little bit under siege. Uh, I don't know, but this has really brought things to a head. And I think it's going to be very interesting in the next year to see what, what comes of it but I certainly also think that people have been very focused Uh, you know the the anti-golf people have been very focused on this in the last few months and yeah that things might change for them
0: yeah, well, um, well, we get to speak to you monthly on this uh, show, so maybe we can maybe you can keep an eye on it for us. And, um, hey,
2: let's 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 look at it again in two years.
0: Oh, okay. Put, it in, put oh, it in your put diary. In... Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you put 20, it in yours. 22.
2: Okay. i oh, oh, it in mine. All right, I'll put it in mine. Um,
0: yeah, okay. I, I need to say goodbye to you. Um, uh, but we'll catch Thanks, you again Gaia. in a month's time. And um, yeah. yeah, look forward to it. Thanks,
3: Dave. Okay, great. See you.
0: Bye. Um, Associate Professor Dave Nichols, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne, talking to about the Northcote Golf Course, um, it has been reclaimed by the community. It sounds like it's going to be still available as a public parkland at least for the next two days. And um, very fascinated to see what happens to it into the future. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R
2: exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform
0: weeks ago I attended the Melbourne School of Discontents Blackfire 2 series which included three lectures one each from Professor Gary Foley, Jackie Katona and Tony Birch and these lectures I just found them super interesting and incredibly entertaining and I enjoyed them so much I wanted to let you know about the third Blackfire series which kicks off tomorrow and uh, Tony Birch has been uh, kind enough to come by and tell us more and um, thanks so much for being there Tony good morning
3: good morning thanks for having me
0: and i mean for those that haven't heard of these series yet you're you're just kicking off your third one what are um the blackfire lectures
3: well we set up firstly the melbourne school of um, discontent of which um we are the three inaugural um members um we're going to do t-shirts at some stage, so that'll be exciting um and basically that what we did was that we feel that there's a a real lack of um, political, intellectual and cultural knowledge out there, particularly aimed at people who are interested in, in education in a wider sense, so that we think that there's an absence of what we call grassroots and diverse opinion from um, Aboriginal people outside the mainstream media and certainly outside the mainstream structures of, of higher education and that we felt that there were issues that were really important that we wanted to discuss not only with Aboriginal people but with non-Aboriginal people have an interest in the issues we're interested in, and, and namely we're, the sort of things we're talking about, essentially uh, a broad notion of, of colonial history and critiquing colonial history. Um, in Jackie's case really important information about the, the history of land rights and political action um, in parts of Australia, and in my case I suppose the issues are working both as a historian, so looking at legislation, tomorrow I'm looking at um, monuments and um, colonial monuments in Australia, and my other interests, which I um, discussed last lecture, which was in climate justice. So we think that um, we represent a much more um, uh, authentic opinion within Aboriginal communities and opinions that really don't get... um, an airing and in, in relationship to really important issues like treaty um, the so-called Uluru statement from the Heart which there's a, a very wide range opinion of that's never discussed in the media and certainly in regards to how we feel about our role in relationship to, to climate justice in this country
0: And so you set up the, um, the Melbourne School of Discontent I love the name of that and I suppose uh, discontent appeals to me but I wonder is that um, uh, something a, a, a kind of a concept that you think will, you know, does attract people that want to learn more, this idea of maybe sitting in, a, in an uncomfortable space as you, as you expose yourself to ideas you might not have, have been exposed to before
3: Yeah, and, and certainly I mean discontent it was Gary Foley's um um, idea and he's a very discontented individual and I was going to call it the, the school of grumpy old men but then Jackie came on board so <laughs> we, had to, if we had to change that. But look, we've been, it's interesting because we're all colleagues, or I, I was until recently we're all colleagues at Victoria University so we, yeah, we work inside and outside of the university system but since um, COVID in March we started to gather at a, a coffee shop in, in um, Fairfield so Probably heads the Fairfield Embassy of our um school, and we were so grumpy and discontent that we just thought we had to do something about it and At a serious level, I think something that would 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 re- resonate with your listeners would be say something like the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which, which, yeah, in language, in terms of what it states, is, is poetic. It's a, it's a motherhood statement. It's a statement that you think, okay, yeah, on paper, this is like something that, you know, it's it, we would agree with, but in fact, are really um, strong opposition to that. Um, concept, that um, not in fact that those objectives aren't reasonable objectives or that they aren't objectives that we share, but in fact that we need something much more tangible if we're going to ever um, walk down the pathway of a proper treaty and something like the Uluru Statement can't deliver it. And what you find is that when we discuss these issues in public amongst non-Aboriginal people, you get a sort of a shock and a surprise, particularly amongst what we might call liberal-minded non-Aboriginal people who want to support... Aboriginal people and think this is the way forward, and they don't understand in fact that there's much more diverse and much more i would say much a much more complex and sophisticated response to these issues so for me i've written about this in the past, is that you know, two issues around the Australian constitution that I bring up which are fairly straightforward that are not discussed are uh, that in fact the 1967 referendum, which people mistakenly considered to be a referendum giving Aboriginal people the vote, which it wasn't, it was a referendum ensuring that the Commonwealth enacted legislation that did not discriminate against Aboriginal people. We can make a very strong argument say, well, okay, that legislation, that entry into the constitution by Aboriginal people did in fact not bring about outcomes of equity and in fact the constitution has been repeatedly used to discriminate against Aboriginal people and secondly to say well the Australian constitution in regard to us as Aboriginal people also supporting the human rights of other people, not Aboriginal people, We can argue very strongly, for instance, that the Australian Constitution over the last two decades has been utilised to discriminate and incarcerate refugees and asylum seekers. And we know that because when cases have been taken to the federal court and the high court to try and free people in these terrible, torturous situations, we know that the Australian government is able to utilise the Constitution and its constitutional legal right in the court to continue to abuse the human rights of, of other people. So, for me, I don't want to support my um, entry or my yeah, a statement about my status in the Constitution when I consider it to be a, 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 a statement of the neglect of other people. So, I, I find it offensive in that sense. So, that just by raising these issues, people get a shock as if this is some you know, new. Radical leftist or separatist position, and it's not. People don't have information about a lot of this stuff, but this is how we we discuss these issues really widely within Aboriginal communities, and many Aboriginal people have opinions about treaty, etc., that do not even enter into public discourse. So we're very disappointed about that.
0: Yeah, and I, I suppose um, I mean the, the lecture of yours that I attended as part of the the last Blackfire series that you ran was on climate justice and the protection of of country. And and I try and follow these um, you know climate change issues you know closely, but I really appreciated. Um, where you were coming from, in the sense of a more holistic view that uh, climate change isn't about just um, carbon dioxide being released into the air at um, unsustainable levels and needing to cut them uh, down to you know net zero by 2050 or whatever it is that um, the, the debate might go. But can you sort of speak a little bit um, to the listeners this morning about how you see climate justice and country? Yeah,
3: well, I mean, look, here there are two. What might seem contradictory, but they're not. There's a juxtaposition that we need to um, consider here. One is that I've come to the conclusion, and I worked on this project as a research fellow for five years, and basically, it was it was twofold. It was looking at the way that indigenous um, nations around the world respond to climate um, catastrophe seeking climate justice for their communities and also looking at what's needed immediately and what we need to understand in a, in a philosophical sense. So I'm not naive. The fact is that we need a two... Well, we need a multi-pronged approach, but one is that we're, we're facing disaster now. We all know that. So climate change and catastrophic weather events are not a future... These are not future events. We're experiencing them now. Um, in that lecture, I talked about, in fact, um, the Inuit, um, nations of the Arctic Circle have been noticing weather changes and rising sea levels since the 1970s. Um, because they're on the ground, because they're, they're so enmeshed um, with understanding how country works, they, they were recognising these changes in much more subtle ways than scientists could ever have done in the 1970s. But what I'm talking about here is that we need policies and we need legislation, we need change now that will do all it can to protect communities who are suffering now. And that is about infrastructure, that is about money, um, that is about literally um, disaster relief, unfortunately. But what I've talked about and thought about more recently is that we need, we need global um, philosophical change. Um, in the long term. So it's no good thinking about, okay, if we use renewables, if we think of, you know, some people support concepts of geoengineering, which geoengineering is a classic example of failure because what it's saying is that we can bring in new scientific techniques that will alleviate certain issues, such as, for instance, rising carbon levels. Now, whether or not that is the case, let's say you could bring up a geoengineering solution around carbon, to think about that solving your problem is ludicrous because that does not change your philosophical relationship, your ethical relationship with the earth, with country. And if we don't do that, and I'm saying if we don't do that outside Indigenous communities and societies, we will make the same mistakes as a global community again and again. Now, I'm not here suggesting that, you know, you need to let's all become Indigenous. That's not possible. That would be disrespectful. What it is to say is to think and consider how Indigenous people relate to country, how Indigenous people see country as, as privilege over their own life, in other words, country is is not not only being equal to country, but country is, in fact, what we have to give authority to in that way to think about how can we change our relationship with with the earth and people often think about this as sort of some you know and it can become sort of some spiritual sort of very fairy sort of liberal notion of, of, of you know even some sort of hippie idea it is not it's a deeply ethical but practical understanding of how to be a person. Yeah, and to me, it's it's. I do a lot of walking, and I write a lot about walking. I'll give you a very tangible example about how people think. I drive. I, I do walk through the Dandenongs, and you can walk along there, and you come across a bit of road at one point, and you know people are driving up there to have day trips to enjoy the countryside. The roadsides are just littered with rubbish that people throw from cars. So this notion that you go somewhere to enjoy it and at the same time you're abusing it is a very common way of understanding people's sense of their authority over a place. To even consider doing that is to show that your mindset is not equipped to in any way consider the country should be privileged over your, your existence.
0: And so there, um, Tony Birch is with us and we're speaking about the Melbourne School of Discontents Blackfire Lecture Series and they're up to series um, Blackfire Lectures number three, which kicks off tomorrow uh, with Tony's uh, lecture on on monuments. But I wonder, um, Tony, with regards to appetite for this kind of information, yep, I've already said it appeals to me and I've been participating, but are you getting um, a sort of a, a broad interest in, in this kind of information? And I suppose there are lectures on Zoom at the moment, but this, you know, the public lecture model?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, look, we, we were forced, in, uh, yeah, many of us have all been forced into this, haven't we? This sort of Zoom existence, which does drive you crazy. But, I know that we've had over a thousand participants, so that um, Foley has a yeah an, an email bank of people that he he can now um, send out his weekly um, mission statements. Um, we've had great attendance at these, so that we know that there's a, a great appetite for this. But even like prior to this we, we knew we, we, we knew that there are interested people and what we want to do after this year and you know hopefully after we're all out of various forms of lockdown, we want to think about how we can Move this forward to other discussions, and we do think the online platforms are helpful in regard to, say, getting an international audience and actually bringing people in from overseas. But of course, we would much prefer to do this um, in person. The three of us, we like to work the room, and in fact, we like to engage with people. And after the formal lecture, it's always better to have a conversation, you know, a friendly, yarn with people after a lecture. So we want to do that. But I think for your listeners, is an important point to note is that even in this number three series, we actually didn't we wanted to hand these on so that we have in fact a lineup of younger Aboriginal people um, I think the one for our proposed lecture three were all women so we're looking at um, representatives from warriors of Aboriginal resistance, um, seed mob who are the young Indigenous climate change activist group and a younger group of Aboriginal women who are what we might call a young a public intellectual um, front. We couldn't do that simply because of time frames of people being very busy and course with COVID being you know, doing a lot of other stuff. So what I think for your listeners, what we'll be looking at next year is the free of us taking uh, a back a step back. Um, and allowing younger people to make sure that they take the forefront and and I've said this repeatedly in the last year or so as I've moved away from academia that I've had a really good opportunity in the last couple of decades to engage with people around issues that are important to me and I I will continue to have some role but the three of us are really um, driven by the idea that not only are the younger voices that need to be heard but particularly Aboriginal women, younger Aboriginal women who are obviously the, the few Future of our uh, political activism and intellectual activism. We need to make sure that their voices are heard and, and they take on those roles as well. I mean, we're trying to, in a way, do a balancing act of being advising because of, yeah, particularly in Polly's case, incredible 50-year experience as an activist, but also saying, okay, we need to allow other people to step up because there is nothing worse than spending the whole day listening to baby boomers, Aboriginal or (laughs) non-Aboriginal.
0: I mean, you're you're pretty pretty entertaining. I mean, Gary just cracks cracks me up. I had my 14-year-old watching his last lecture and she was absolutely captured. Um, and his one this week is called "When Your Best Friends Are Your Worst Enemies," and he has a look at um, you know I suppose um, high points and low points of the of of 20 yeah. years um, of of political um, activity and movements here in, in Melbourne. But what are you looking at t- uh, tomorrow with the with um, your lecture on on monuments?
3: Okay, but I just do want to say I have to throw in a word about folly. One of the things about folly that people often um, misunderstand is that he has great friendships with non-Aboriginal people, oh, yes. and he has he has as many enemies <laughs> within the Aboriginal community because he he is a truth teller, and um, he is very entertaining. I think he's a frustrated comedian, but as well as an intellectual. But what I'm talking about um, are monuments, um, and what I want to talk about. So obviously, this has been an issue of relevance globally recently in regard to Black Lives Matter and the toppling of monuments around the world. Um, I'm not going to talk about. Um, the validity of that. No, I will, I will mention that because obviously we understand the importance of that. But what I want to show um, people tomorrow is what I would consider the, not only the deeply offensive, but the, absolute, the ludicrous nature of um, the creation of monuments here in Victoria. So I've done a lot of historical work, um, particularly in the Western District, and I've looked over the years at not only the desecration of major Aboriginal sites, so I'll talk about the desecration of an important Aboriginal site called Bunjil Shelter um, in the Western District outside the town of Stall, but also the way that Europeans have not only sanitised violence against Aboriginal people, but have constructed monuments to really completely erase um, our history, our histories of that area and to incorporate um, histories of European occupation which create um, mythologies and deny Realities, and they range from, as I said, the vandalisation of Bunjil Shelter, which is now a hundred-year-old cultural practice by non-Aboriginal people, um, to creating 300 memorial plaques along the Mitchell Trail to commemorate Major Thomas Mitchell, who is a, a known murderer of Aboriginal people, to the completely ridiculous of erecting a giant koala on a really important Aboriginal um, gathering site at Dadswell's Bridge outside of stall, So even when you see these ludicrous sort of gigantism um, practices, um, the giant koala is about 60 feet tall, I think you can see him from Google um, Earth um, <laughs> that was a, a site an important Aboriginal people gathering site where people were, were literally driven off their land and you know, a koala was put in this place to to help you forget about what happened there
0: uh, very much looking forward to it. And the lunchtime lecture series. So if you um, um, can schedule your, your lunch break uh, one until uh, sorry midday until one, kicking um, yeah. off tomorrow and every day this week. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday this week. So um, Tony Birch uh, with you tomorrow, uh, Jackie Katona the following day on Wednesday, and then Gary Foley um, wrapping up the Blackfire three series on Thursday. And really good to hear uh, Tony that the the series is going to continue um, beyond these.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we'll be back next year. We don't know how we'll be back. I mean, Foley may do his own um, comedy hour. Who knows by then? Um, anything could happen. You um, never
0: but, know. You, you hear it here first, maybe, or maybe on his mailing list,
3: <laughs> probably. Yeah, we <laughs> we might actually come up. I might talk to Folly and see if we can come on to Triple R and, and sort of do a dry run and a, and... Have a go and see how your listeners they could rate our jokes or something. Yeah. You know,
0: so. Oh, yeah. We can do talk back. We don't do it often, but you know we could we could try. Um, go all school.
3: Yeah, we could do a poll. Yeah. <laughs> a
0: poll. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you, you you work out the questions and, and we can get that one going. Thanks so much. <laughs> Um, Dr. Tony Birch um, uh, there with us talking about the Melbourne School of Discontents Blackfire Three series, um, and you can uh, find them online melbourneschoolofdiscontent.com um, Just search it up, and uh, you can catch uh, the three of them lecturing this week. Um, very much recommend you to go there um, and find out more. Get on the list, and if you can't make it this week, um, well, you can register, and actually it's ticketed, so I think ten to twenty dollars. Um, It's ticketed. And if you can't do it live, then you can actually tune in after as well. Triple. Ah. And uh, earlier this year, we uh, met the inaugural Queen Victoria Women's Centre Feminist in Residence, Kate Robertson, who was just taking on that mantle when COVID-19 met her interactive craft project idea needed some creative modification. And over the past six months, she's somehow brought together what promises to be a really interesting collection of more than 150 provocative craft projects called Making a Fuss, the exhibition that she's created will open online tomorrow and Kate welcome back to 3RRR. How are you going? Thank you so much for having me. And and just take us back six months that's when I think we I I didn't check the dates but I think that's kind of when we we spoke to you when your idea you'd just been um, uh, awarded the the residency there at the Queen Vic Women's Centre and you were kind of rethinking um, the idea that that you'd kind of gone to the centre with. Maybe catch us up on how you've been going.
1: <laughs> How naive we were six months ago. <laughs> we know that. so much more now. We are so much wiser, aren't we? much wiser so um, yeah about six months ago was when we last chatted and I think at the time I was still hopeful that by this time of year we'd be able to have an in-person exhibition um, but obviously none of that has happened um, so my project has completely changed in many ways um, but in its, its own exciting way so the I guess for context for people that don't know the Feminist in Residence program is the first of its kind in Australia it's basically the Queen Vic Women's Centre provides funding um, each year for a feminist to embed themselves within the organisation and design and lead a project um, that's linked to the centre's aims in some way and so my project that has come about um, I guess from this time and space to reflect and create has been Make a Fuss Um, and so Make a Fuss Essentially, I asked um, women and people of marginalised genders, non-binary people, trans men, to, um, I guess, think about and create a piece of craftwork which answers the question: What do you no longer want to be silent about? And um, I think when we talked last, I'd been spending a lot of time at home, you know, reading Audrey Lord and a, a variety of I other think so, yes. texts, <laughs> <laughs> and thinking a lot about, you know, I guess the regret that comes from being silent and, you know, what are we afraid of? And so my project was kind of born out of that time at home in a way. Um, And now um, I'm really excited. I feel really lucky um, because we received, as you said, over 150 pieces um, in all kinds of mediums. So we've received poetry, painting, quilts. Um, one person did a cross-stitch uh, that is uh, made out of fabric scraps and piece of a, pieces of an old work contract, um, which is basically a response to her being like bullied and silenced in her workplace. Someone else created this incredible gold bowl, and inside the bowl she's cut up pieces of this family Bible that she inherited that was over a hundred years old, and in the Bible there were sections on like what constitutes a good woman or a foolish woman, um, and so she has you know created her piece around that. Um, so we received all kinds of things. Someone did a sculpture made out of um, pistachio nuts. Shells. Um, yeah, what do you do yes. with them? Otherwise, they just go in the bin <laughs> or the
0: compost, don't they? So you know, why not? You create art. That's what you
1: do. <laughs> so, how
0: did people hear about it? Like, what were the kind of avenues? Because I, I do remember also that, I mean, look, all of us have had our plans tipped on their heads. So, but this yeah. idea of adapting. So, if you wanted, you know, I, I know that you wanted to run workshops and go out into the regions around Victoria mm. and things like that. So, but how did you, in the end, come to? to get the call out to the the people that did end up responding?
1: Yeah, so um, a lot of word of mouth. Um, I also, I personally love snail mail. Like I just, I love the act of writing and receiving letters. Um, and so I created these postcards that I sent out to people and you could essentially like invite your friends um to participate in the project so I sent out over 250 postcards to people um and then a lot of word of mouth and I think that was the really beautiful thing about the project was I expected that I had to create the space um and that's what I really wanted to do in it um is, yeah to hold workshops and things like that but what I heard from people that participated was that they didn't need me to do that work they themselves created the space and had crafternoons and, you know, virtual meetups with friends over Zoom to craft together and talk about what they'd been silent about. And I think that felt really special and personal. Um, And, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Um, Like, women have been gathering and creating and crafting together and using that in its own subversive way um, forever. So um, it's kind of not a surprise that people did that, but those kind of moments felt really special as part of the project. So those women gathering and talking, and um, yeah, that that it feels so personal. That's why every work feels so special and emotional in its own way.
0: And we've heard a lot um, through this period, through the past uh, few months, that that women have bought the Borne the brunt of what what we're going through now in many ways. I mean, the statistics bear it out around employment and and the caring roles and and things like that. And I mean, look, everybody's had their own experience of the pandemic, and I, I think in many ways we've all you know we've all um, you know had our own things to deal with. But the the numbers tell us that women have borne the brunt of of many of the big shifts and, and the shutdowns and, and so forth. Have you discovered that through interacting with the participants in in this um, work, uh, Kate, that, that people have, you know, are experiencing a heavy load at this time,
1: women? Yeah, definitely. And I think... Um what What was so surprising, or maybe not surprising, maybe I was a bit naive in that way, but something that's so beautiful is that um there's been a lot of people who've submitted works that like I'm calling sister works in a way that are by two people who've never met each other that in some way feel whether in theme or how the work looks or what what they've chosen to talk about or what silence they've cho- chosen to speak up about, feel really much like sisters. Um, and you're like, how... It, it's it's incredible that you, these two people who've never met, um, I guess, have that experience. But I guess that's been something about this pandemic as well, is that, um, yeah, there, is, there are so many people that are going through... Um, very very similar things, um, and it's it's no surprise that you know yeah, women have bore the brunt um, of a lot of the the issues that have come about um, so I guess yeah it, it has felt very special to receive those works and um, there's something really incredible about creating and I think that's been something that I guess I've been thinking a lot about and a lot of other people um, have thought about too which is just like now at this time when social movements have really had to move into our homes like crafting and craftivism like really reminds us that we have the power to create something new and different Um, and we can do that today and we can do that in our own home and we can do that with our own hands. So that's been really special. Yeah, Kate
0: Robinson's with us. She's a feminist in residence at the Queen Victoria's Women's Centre and been running um, a project over the past six months and uh, opening an exhibition tomorrow called Make a Fuss. And uh, tell us how you're doing the exhibition because I also understand there's some. you've got some song and some audio and video as, as part of what you're able to present online.
1: Yeah, the unexpected joy of a virtual exhibition has been that anything is possible. Um, Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) Anything is possible except for all being there together. (laughs) But we can be there in
0: in, in physical sense, I mean.
1: Exactly. Um, So I guess because my project was so much about connecting, um, I really wanted to include women's voices. Um, and non-binary people's voices in the virtual exhibition. So the virtual exhibition um, is going live tomorrow um, on the Queen Victoria Women's Centre website um, so you can check it out from 10am. Uh, essentially it's, it starts uh, in, in the lift of the building um, with a really beautiful special Welcome to Country um, and it was, I really, I wanted people to listen to the Welcome to Country and kind of have that of have that idea of being in the elevator and you're just you're there and you're present because I think sometimes now we just you know click ahead, click forward, skip, um, but it's it's actually just so beautiful and powerful. Anyway, so you go into the lift, you have the welcome to country and then the exhibition in the virtual sense, is actually on the rooftop of the building Um, and so uh, you can wander around and see these incredible city views but also see um, the pieces. Um, When we talked six months ago, I really wanted um, to have this craftivist caravan um, that could travel to different parts of Melbourne um, and just be a pop-up exhibition. Obviously that hasn't happened um, but we've retained the caravan um, in the virtual roof setting um, so you'll be able to go In the caravan, um, there are some sections that are themed, um, so there's just by nature of the works that we received so there's a section that's on bodies um, another that's on emotion there's a poetry corner a section that looks at race um, and you can just wander throughout the exhibition in about a third of the works you're able to um, click on the work and not only see it um, or read the description that the artist has um, created but also listen to a voice memo um, from that person um, about their piece and that those voice memos are so incredibly powerful um, because you're literally hearing from the person who's created the work and some people have chosen to talk about the method that they've used some people have chosen um, to read a poem some people um, have had a really frank conversation um, about their experience um, and what that's been so when you're going through the virtual exhibition tomorrow really look out for those voice memos because they they're they're incredible
0: and so um you can tell us how people can find their way there but when you say navigate so i'm actually you know better on a on a a phone or like how how do i actually do that what what is the the space that you've been able to create
1: yeah so it's kind of like on google maps where you can click through um like walks virtually walk through the rooftop um and yeah and click on the works that's kind of how it how it works um and the place for people to go is just to the to www.qvwc.org.au, and it will be on the homepage. Um, yeah. And so, and
0: you do though. Um, just to to finish it, you you do hope to have this open for for people to physically visit when we're permitted to do so. As as well Kate is that the kind of idea yes
1: yes so we're hoping um, hopefully in six months time we won't be saying that we were naive again but we're hoping (laughs) that it's going to launch um, on International Women's Day at the centre um, next year
0: and all the best for that and um i suppose you know are there other things that we should know about as part of your feminist in residence before before we end like i I suppose if people want to get in touch with you they can do that through the the queen victoria women's center website uh yeah and you've still got six months to run i understand on your residency
1: yeah, exactly. So um the hopefully the in person exhibition will be um the culmination of the project um because I think there is while the virtual world is you know amazing in its own way there's something really special about being in a space and in a room surrounded by all of these women's voices um so look out for the in-person exhibition as well as the virtual exhibition um and yeah all of my details and everything if people want to get in touch um, are through the website or social media platforms queen do women's Centre social media
0: well done and enjoy the opening tomorrow and uh, i'm sure people who've heard this and uh, piqued their interest they'll head along and um, interact uh, with the exhibition thanks so much kate
1: Thank you so much for
0: having me. No worries. Kate Robinson um, returning six months on um, talking about her feminist in residence experience at the Queen Vic Women's Centre. And you can head there for, um, to interact tomorrow with the Make Us a Fuss exhibition. Maybe you contributed something. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, catching that tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.